Today's reading comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. All right. Uh, it is good to be with you. I hope that you are hold, holding on, hanging in there. I can feel the room is getting a bit warmer. Can you feel that? All right. That's an indicator of the length of sermon, that I will be sensitive to the temperature of the room. You hold me to that. I'm not giving you a time, but I'm just going to be sensitive. All right. 
All right. Well, it's been quite a, uh, a journey for movies recently, uh, the number of superhero movies. Um, Iron Man, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Superman, one, two, three, four, five. Batman, one, two, three, four, five. Keeps going, doesn't it? Uh, Superman, I saw Superman this week. Um, I don't know what version of that was, how many we've had. We've had a lot of superhero movies. We are longing for a superhero. Um, maybe like Westerns, uh, you're, you're longing for a John Wayne kind of hero to come along. Maybe like Westerns that take place in outer space. Uh, Star Wars, uh, maybe you like Luke Skywalker and uh, Star Wars 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It keeps going, doesn't it? We want... A, a superhero. There's a uh, influential book that came out in 1949. It's called Hero with a Thousand Faces. Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it has been instrumental uh, in shaping the understanding that mankind has been after a hero for a long time. Go back to the Greek mythologies. And the one thing the hero does is he leaves... This is the study of all these mythologies and all the stories of man. From this book, he says, the author um, says that the hero leaves the ordinary world and is willing to take on a noble task at the, at the risk of their own life. Willing to leave the ordinary world, to do battle for a good and noble cause and risking their own life in the process. <clears throat> Who would have thought that Genesis 1 and 2, those beautiful passages of the Bible, would lead to Genesis 3 and lead us to the need for a hero to come, to leave the ordinary world and to show himself ready to do battle for a worthy cause. Um, as we think about the Bible, we think about the scriptures, we think about God's word today, will you join me in prayer? Let's, uh, let's unite our hearts and ask our God to be with us. Father, there was a day when mankind was uh, naked and unashamed. Father, this uh, reminds us of a time and a day when we do not know or understand Father, we are so used to the, the day in which we live, the time in which we live. We have become accost, accustomed to death. We are very familiar with a world that is broken, and we are trying to do what we can to find comfort. Father, in these moments, it is not enough that we would just hear some tidbits of wisdom. Father, it is not enough that we would just hear a religious lecture. Father, I pray that in these, in these moments that you would inter intersect with us, that you would intercede and you would bring your divine power. Father, that you might bring your binding authority upon our lives. May it be un unmista unmistakable for us, Lord, that you have spoken today. Father, I claim no ability to do that on my own. I have only my sin to offer you. I have only my inability and my, only my weakness and so, Lord, we thank you that you ultimately are the preacher in our midst. And we pause and thank you that you can bring the, the truth home to our hearts. Bring it in a way that actually speaks to the heart and transforms it. And so, our humble reliance upon you rises to heaven itself. 
Father, help us hear you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so the story begins in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a beautiful creation, isn't it? Uh, It's a great creation. God pronounces his benediction upon creation. It's good. It's a good world. God's style is to, to multiply things. When God makes a pear tree, it's not supposed to produce just one pear. Uh, it's, uh, it's supposed to be, overwhelm uh, human beings with, with multiple pairs. God does things in an extraordinary way. And the beauty of Hawaii, the beauty of Oahu is around us and on full display. What we're looking at today is Genesis 3. It is a classic, a traditional understanding of the human condition. And there is nothing that is more despised in our day than a traditional understanding of the human condition. There is nothing more rejected than Genesis 3. Uh, We have had uh, hundreds of years uh, where man has devised philosophies, ideas, theologies to resist these very very truths, the idea that man is a sinner. It is offensive to people. And yet we have the Bible presenting it to us as a matter of fact that there was a talking creature, a serpent, I can't explain that. Uh, atheists love to jump on that. So you believe in a talking snake. Huh. And they mock the idea. Well, the Bible presents it as such. And Adam and Eve are presented as real people. The garden is presented as a real place. And uh, biblical testimony con- is consistent about these are real things. And if you have trouble with these things, you might park with our Lord himself, stop there and have, have Jesus speak to you directly because he spoke of Adam as a real human being. But these ideas uh, here in Genesis 3 are rejected in our day and age. Yet what most explains our situation as human beings? What most clearly and most accurately describes our condition? And is it not a condition where we are doing our best to deal with death? Is not death the main issue of our existence, and we're trying to avoid it? In fact, uh, Reformed theologians describe the fall of man as misery, the misery that man fell into, the estate of misery that man fell into. Now, the Bible starts off with a prohibition. Man's relationship to God would be in this utopia, extraordinary place, but there would be one key condition, that would be that man was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one prohibition would represent man's dependence upon God for everything. Ultimately, God is saying that you depend upon me to understand good and evil itself. You don't define it for yourself. You don't come up with your own clever ideas about what is good and what is evil. God sets the parameters. God sets the boundaries. Perfect man needed revelation. Perfect man needed God to reveal what reality is all about. Okay, so now the first Prohibition is really something for man to be careful to obey. 
There is one tree, and it is going to deliver a wallop to you. Behind this tree lurks certain death. Some call this, uh, this time for Adam as the covenant of creation, the covenant of works. Man enjoying the splendor of creation in a prohibitionary period of time. Observe one thing before we really get up and going here, and that is that God loves symbolic communication. The covenants of God, we've already had one uh, expression of the covenant of grace through, through baptism. God has symbolically communicated to us and to the Cook family what he thinks of their daughter. If my words were not clear enough, the visual is to help all of us understand what God thinks. So God loves symbolism. In fact, you could argue the whole, the whole world is a symbolic expression of God and his communication to man. God is communicating as man walks through the trees, among the trees. God is communicating his blessing upon mankind. And as long as Adam and Eve did not partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as long as they didn't partake... They knew what God was thinking about them all the time because they had not transgressed the boundary. The trees, I would argue, are symbolic of their relationship to God, particularly the tree that they are to avoid. As long as Eve, as long as we avoid that tree, imagine Adam talking, as long as we avoid that tree, we can know for certain what God thinks of us. You might think that's kind of a strange, unusual way to look at it, but I would say that God is communicating powerfully to man in the garden what he thought of them. Well, now we have the entrance of trouble. We know that the garden was this unique place, but someone else was present. Someone else was there. And so we have the serpent speaking to Eve, and he begins to question uh, how does it work here? Uh, and he first asks, are you, are you prohibited from eating everything here? It's kind of a strange sort of beginning of the conversation. And this is so instructive of how temptation works. So the first thing is that God is slandered. This is verses 1 through 5. God is slandered. The serpent comes along and asks Eve, essentially, now tell me how this works again. How, what, tell me about it. Uh, and you don't really get to enjoy this garden, do you? And Eve says, no, 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 no. We, we get to partake of, of, of everything except for, except for that one tree, the, the tree in the midst of the garden. We're not supposed to touch it lest we die, end of verse 3. Well, Eve has it right. And now we have the slander. Satan comes along, and he says, well, you're surely not going to die. That's, the, that's his, his restatement, his re, reinterpretation. For God knows, now he's representing God, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is really quite instructive about how temptation works. Temptation can come in an, in an expression of astonishment. 
Satan here, embodied in this serpent, is essentially saying an expression of astonishment. He's, he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. The one thing that leads to, to life itself, the one thing that really makes life work, I'm astonished at you, Eve. You haven't figured this out. I have to be a guide for you. I have to guide you because you're kind of, you're kind of slow. You're kind of slow to catch on. He implies she should have caught on to this before. And there's kind of an astonishment. Like you haven't moved in the, into the fullness of human, human living. Of course, Satan is cleverly disguising his, his plan. And all along, he is, he is doubting the goodness of God. Goodness of God. Think of the last time you succumbed to a temptation. Somewhere in there, you were acting as a theologian. All of you are theologians, by the way. Some of you have formal training. Some of you don't have formal training. But you're all theologians. You've all come to a theological conclusion uh, during that temptation. And you thought something about God in relationship to that temptation. And uh, if you succumb to the temptation uh, in some way or another, you minimize what God has said. You have interpreted uh, God and God's word and uh, adjusted it so it would fit to what you wanted. So Satan is presenting this. These boundaries are unreasonable, Eve. They're unreasonable. And he is, ast- he is astonished that she is living within boundaries. Now, the core thing that Satan produces here, as Eve is deceived and as Adam partakes, the core thing that happens is that he creates a race of rebels. They will define human flourishing, human existence apart from God. Francis Schaeffer and others would call this human autonomy. This is the core of sin. Sin is an autonomous way of living. And so God is thought of in terms of suspicion. God's word is diminished. And human beings now assert that they can define what is good and they can define what is evil. And then, now secondly, God is replaced. Verses 6 through 9. And so Eve saw that the tree was good for eating. She, take, she took of it. Very, very sort of, uh, just very matter of fact, Moses records for us that Adam took the, eat, took the food as well and ate. No longer now is man aware of his responsibilities to take care of this good creation. Man is no longer outwardly focused But notice what is characterized here, what characterizes mankind in verse um, verse 8. It says here, excuse me, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They knew that they were naked, self-conscious. Self-aware. No longer is there this outward focus about the, the big picture of their lives. Now they have moved 
With God replaced, the self has become the center. And now we see that they are now hiding from God. God comes and approaches and wants to have a dialogue and conversation, and they are hiding from God among the trees. They are suspicious of God. God has come looking for righteousness. God has come with his law, still abiding upon the conscience of Adam and Eve. God has come. His good law is still there, uh, held forth, should have been obeyed, and his very approach is threatening. And now we see that one of the key techniques of man experiencing the fall is this. It is hiding. Hiding through philosophy. Hiding through adventures, diversions. Hiding. Preoccupied with hiding. Hiding even, perhaps, with religion. Sort of coming up with ideas about what might, uh, might be a good religion. Man is hiding lest he be exposed as a sinner, exposed as one who cannot meet God's righteous requirement. And so the characteristic of the the human race from this point on will be a kind of hiding. Well, then thirdly, notice that God is proven true. Their eyes have been opened. They are now uh, entering into death. Death has begun. Nakedness is essentially this knowledge of others that hadn't been there before, overwhelming the self, and there's really been no empowerment. In fact, mankind has been diminished. We didn't become more human, we became less. And those who study idolatry will tell us that man became an idolater and now began to serve, Romans 1, began to serve some aspect of creation. This great regal creature made to to be lord over creation is now bowing down to some aspect of creation, hiding, wanting to be covered, diversions, what have you. Derek Tinbull is an author, um, and he wrote of this condition that man had fallen into, says that man was shocked fearful, and self-absorbed. Well, then God speaks to man. Surprise, surprise. Uh, God comes, and he wants to dialogue with man. And much of this dialogue is really just to bring to man's awareness, to Adam's awareness, Eve's awareness, of what has happened, the full implications of it. So God has moved from creator now. He begins to move to being redeemer. And the conversation goes that God has, has shown up and there's a conversation where Adam is now acknowledging that he was afraid, verse 10. And then uh, Adam acknowledges that he was naked and I hid. God says, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And now, verse 12, ladies, we have Adam's response. And the man said, this is his time. He's being put on the witness stand. He's being told, uh, uh, given a chance to account for himself. He could have said, I blew it. I own the whole thing. But rationalization comes in. 
And he says this, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And all the ladies in the church say, Not so fast, Adam. One commentator says that through rationalization, the criminal becomes the victim. And it, and it is God and the woman who become the real instigators of the scenario. Clever. A clever twist of turn, twisting of, the, of what's happened. It's actually the action of Eve that made me eat. What? In fact, the one you made for me is the source of my trouble. Ooh, clever. Clever. Well, you think that will work with a perfect, all-knowing God? Clever, Adam, not quite. And then the woman indicates that it's a serpent who deceived her and she ate. So now we have God moving in redemptive mode. Surprise, surprise. So God now is promising a redeemer in verse 15. Verses 14 and 15 are instructive. And let me read this for you just out loud so we get the feel of it. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now this next verse, and I, I've been teaching the Bible for quite a while. This next verse, uh, when I'm among uh, Christians... Uh, teaching the Bible and uh, using, I almost always come up with an excuse to use Genesis 3.15. Even has nothing to do with, even parenting, I'll use I'll, anything. I'll, I will get people at Genesis 3.15. And inevitably, there is in, in the crowd, in the group, people who have never seen this verse in the Bible. And let me recommend it to you, that this is the key verse in Genesis 3, 3, and it lets us know how history is going to unfold. Speaking to the serpent, listen to this. And I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, bitterness between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, suddenly, out of nowhere, there shows up a he. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Now that is uh, couched in mystery. That's why we're calling our series The Unfolding Mystery. Who is the he in the passage? And what will he do? Well, we learn that he will be one who can crush a serpent's head. And by the way, when you're dealing with a a snake, uh, you might be very proud that you, you crushed its tail. But that's not where you want to go, right, with a, with a snake. You want to go right for the head. That is the operating center of the snake's life. Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, the promise is someone is coming who's going to deal you a mortal, head-crushing blow. You will engage him, and you will strike him. But compared to the two wounds, yours will be the fatal one. The one you inflict will not be the fatal one. So God is promising to Satan, who is now creating a race of rebels, 
He's creating that there will be a division between this race of rebels and her seed, speaking of Eve. What this means is simply that as the Bible unfolds, there will be a people that God will create for himself. You'll see this in Genesis 4, people who call upon the name of the Lord. There will be those who rebel against God's ways and clench their fist whenever God reveals his will and defy him. You can see this from Genesis 4 through chapter 11. You can see those who are a very small group of people who are listening and calling upon the name of the Lord, and then others who are building civilizations and cities. And as God commands them to go a particular way or to do a certain thing, they raise their fists to him in defiance. The whole of the Bible unfolds, and you'll see these kinds of divisions. It ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ. Those who would attack him, seek to destroy him, embodied in the Pharisees, religious leaders of of Israel, we see the unfolding of two kinds of people in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. An unnamed warrior is going to come, and he is going to do battle, culminating redemptive history as he does this. So, surprise, surprise, the first covenant was a covenant of creation or a covenant of works, And now the second covenant is a covenant of grace. God is going to redeem mankind, but it will not be through law. It will be through grace. The Redeemer will embody God's merciful grace. It is a surprising revelation. And now we have God covering man's shame in the symbolism of the the garments that were made of skins of animals, verse 21. Again, now we have God moving toward man, covering man's shame with the blood of an animal that had to be uh, given in order to provide these skins. And so, someone is going to come who will embody this need to cover our shame, this need to cover our guilt. And of course, we know that it's going to be Jesus Christ who will ultimately be the one who now comes to cover us with his own very blood. So how many are the attempts of our our own lives to cover ourselves, to make for ourselves some kind of, uh, uh, where we look good, some sort of way where um, we don't look like those who transgress God's commandment? Well, the, the ways we do this are multiple. We do not want to be seen as sinners. Now, what God does in his good, good plan is he actually brings to us something that we have been wired for. You and I were wired for law. We were wired for obedience. We were made to revel in God's commands. God's good law. And what God does in his good grace is this. He brings his law to bear because we need to be awakened to where we fall short. We have to see that we are naked. We have to see that we are uh, outside of his plan, outside of obedience to him. We, We have shame. 
We are outside. We have no true covering. What reveals to us our true condition? It will not be where the pulpit explains to you a few principles or a few wise sayings from Jesus. It will be God's law presented to you as a perfect standard. From there, God uses his law and sinners acknowledge, I cannot meet that standard, Romans 3.19. The whole world is accountable to God that every mouth may be closed. I don't have the righteousness that God requires of me. Where can I find it? And so in the true preaching of the gospel, we have a distinction made where the law does its work and the gospel now does its work. You now turn exposed, having no righteousness of your own, and now you turn to a Savior and you realize that it is him who ultimately covers my shame and my, my sin. Banished from the garden is the last image of Genesis 3. In fact, we have verse 24, God driving man out of the garden at the east gate, uh, east of the garden of Eden, and he placed cherubim or mighty angels with flaming swords, turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God was not willing that man would stay forever in that sinful condition. And so the drama now takes place outside of Eden. The drama now will be, can God dwell in the midst of people again, in the midst of humanity again, a holy God in the midst of people? How will he be among people again? How will that happen? Of course, the unfolding of the Bible is God's plan to do just that. What was lost? What was really lost? So much could be said about Genesis 3. What was lost was God at the center of man's life. A worshipful center was lost. Paul Tripp says this in a little extensive quote, and then I'm done. Fearing the Lord means that this worshipful awe is the single and unchallenged motivator of everything I think, desire, and do. What does it mean to have a Christ-centered existence? It means that the fear of the Lord, more than the fear of anything else, sets the agenda for our actions, reactions, and responses. The kingdom of self is driven by all kinds of other fears. Fear of man, fear of discomfort, difficulty, fear of failure, fear of not getting my way, etc. The principle here is this, that if God doesn't own the fear of our hearts, he will not own our lives. What is it that Jesus does for us? He's our redeemer. He's the point of the unfolding mystery. What does he do? We should have got law. We should have had God hold his standard of perfect righteousness and keep holding it against us. And he would have been just to do that. What does Jesus do? He comes and he gives us grace. Grace to overwhelm our hearts with gratitude. What is the reason why we obey? What is the reason why we would fear God now? Because he was better than we thought. 
He was more kind than we imagined. The covering I have through Jesus is better than any covering I could make on my own. He has given me a gift that I didn't think was a gift. He's given me the gift of the fear of the Lord again. But the root of it, the root of it is not law. It's grace. And this is how God desired to be known as history unfolds, to be a God of grace. Of course, it leads to law-keeping, but God wants us to be motivated by his sheer grace toward us. You see, Jesus, as a great hero does, he leaves the ordinary world and does something noble and just. But in most characterizations of the superheroes of our day, mankind is presented as innocent. And the superhero has to defend mankind from some evil out there. But in the Bible, the evil's out there, but the evil is in here too. And you see, that's the hero that is rarely talked about in literature or in film. The one who comes after us in that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See? He left the ordinary world of glory and came with a noble cause. And in the end, what did we give him? We gave him nakedness. What did we give him? We gave him the curse of thorns, the crown that represented the curse of this creation. We gave that to him. You see, ultimately, when God embodied his love and his grace and his righteousness, we rose up against the one who came with such love. And in doing so, we, we crucified him. But here's the genius of it that we couldn't see, nor could they see then. What he was doing in his death was killing death. What he was doing in his death was delivering a mortal blow to Satan's head. And no one could see it, nor could Satan. And he cried out, for God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so he covers us, you see. As he covered Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he covers us through Jesus Christ. May his grace be the motivator for all your obedience. May his grace overwhelm your heart and reestablish the fear of the Lord through grace. Let's pray. Father, you have a rightful place in our heart now. You are, you are good because you are good. We could not have earned it. We could not have made ourselves acceptable. You've exposed us today. Your cross reveals our heart. Father, we thank you that we can glory in your grace alone. Help us, help us shape our theological vision as a church. Help us shape 
our obedience and help us shape the reason why we even want to obey you. Thank you for your grace among us. In Christ's name, amen.